Welcome to the Connect the Dots podcast. Jeffrey Klein has conversations with a diverse array of successful people, sharing their stories to educate, inspire, and entertain. Here is your host, Jeffrey. My guest today is Dr. Hannah McLean, a physician, psychoanalyst, and entrepreneur. She's the founder of SoundMind Institute, a nationwide psychedelic facilitator training and research initiative aimed at bringing ethics, equity, and innovation to the psychedelic ecosystem. Dr. Hannah conducts research on cognitive diversity, psychedelic science, ethics, PTSD, and emerging alternative therapies for mental health issues. She attended McGill University and holds graduate degrees from Temple University, Brown University, and Harvard School of Public Health. She attended residencies in neurology and occupational and environmental medicine and completed a fellowship in patient safety at the VA hospital in Philadelphia. She also completed a five-year psychoanalytic training program and considers herself a relational psychoanalyst. Please welcome Dr. Hannah. Thank you so much. Uh, that's quite a background. So let's we're going to go a little before then. I like to start at the beginning. So where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? Um, so I was born in New Hampshire, rural New Hampshire, um, Plymouth. Uh, so it's like central, central New Hampshire in the White Mountains. Um, grew up in, like was born in a town of a few hundred people at my house. My parents were very much hippies and had goats and uh, <laughs> back to the earthers is what my mom called it. Um, and let's see. So interestingly, they started out both as bi- high school biology teachers and then went into real estate. My dad had, has dyslexia like I do. And I think he didn't like having a boss. He wanted to like start his own thing. So he was uh, in the 80s when the bubble burst. They were basically like giving away. I mean, they were like run down dilapidated houses, but they were kind of free almost, you know. So he uh, we, we fixed them up together as a family, like from when I was in elementary school to end of high school. So I can clean a a mean bathroom if uh, if you need it. Uh, So that's a pretty interesting background. Uh, Interestingly, my father-in-law is a very successful real estate um, investor developer is also dyslexic. And uh, in some ways, I think that's almost a superpower in some ways. I think um, it's a challenge, but it also, there's something about, those who find a different way of thinking about things that I've always found fascinating, especially for entrepreneurs. I like um, to tell anyway. people that it's um, like it's a superpower from force compensatory strategies. <laughs> like if you're not born with the superpower, you have to create them because you're bad at certain things. You have to get better at other things, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when yeah. one of your, one of your senses is, is lost, you end up becoming totally. uh, heightened in those others. Uh, so in your rural New Hampshire environment, fixing up houses, um, as a kid, did you ever have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Did you have any thoughts on like, oh, I want to be this? You know, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian for a while. Well, first I wanted first I wanted to be the Easter Bunny, which like, in fact, I think it was like almost like my imaginary friend that I thought I was. So I would like put on this East, like my mom says that it was, <laughs> she thinks it was trauma related that I saw an Easter Bunny like suit per person deliver flowers to the neighbor and then take off his head on the way out and I was like oh my god so then I was trying to like replace the fantasy of the Easter bunny being alive but I for legit like for for months would dress up as the Easter bunny and then say I was hippity the Easter bunny and my and like it freaked out my family so much that I actually like had to hide the costume (laughs) 
Where is that costume? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I have it now. My mom's kept it, and I have it. And oh. I'm like, oh, my childhood that you took away. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Um, after that, I think I wanted to be a veterinarian for a while. I would say like maybe third grade through eighth grade. I I was like very into animal rights. Again, mm-hmm. saw a pig being roasted at a fair, mm-hmm. and then freaked out mm-hmm. and was like, "I'm never eating meat again." This was Hannah as a third grader. And my parents were like, no, 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 we don't do that. And I was like, well, I do that. So I <laughs> went to the library and started, re- my mom said, you'll never grow to be tall. I'm now six feet tall, but you'll never grow. And I said, okay, I'm going to go do research. Mm. So I researched like what vitamins my body might need. Uh, mm. And then I promptly like signed up for lots of animal rights paraphernalia. And I'd go into McDonald's and put like meat is murder on the bottom of the salt and stuff. I just mm. <laughs> Something else. Got my whole my whole school to sign a Gillette petition because they tested on animals then they probably still do in eighth grade like the whole school principal and all yeah so it's clear to me that you were an independent spirit uh <laughs> growing up and, but I'm curious was there any you know other role models from where you're coming up that you looked up to that may have given you ideas about hey you can do things a different way yeah I mean let's see I think I've had a lot of role models through um my like later elementary school years I'm trying to think of early earlier years I think my parents are like actually really cool I'm now realizing my dad just got into ayahuasca and he's like the coolest guy ever now (laughs) Um, but they've always been very cool just they kind of do their own thing and it's it's very much like they don't really do capitalism they the the like the pillows that are on the like the throw pillows on the couch are the same ones that were there when I was a kid. It's not that they don't have money to replace them. They just like believe in reusing things. Um, Mm -hmm. And they grow things in the garden and they like half the time they're eating just things that grew in the garden. They're canning it. You know, it's very, and I don't, I think as a kid, I didn't realize you actually have to, that you have to purposely do that, that you don't just Mm -hmm. fall into that, you know? Um, And I think I kind of took that for granted when I was a kid. Um, I had a math teacher in eighth grade that I think was really cool. Um, Mr. Underwood, he, you know, he kind of embodied, like, uh, he kind of protected the space around me asking a lot of questions. Um, cause they, I was always a person who would like ask so many questions that like I'd delay recess. Cause I'd be like, wait, I didn't understand. They're like, Oh my God, this lady just like, let's go play. You know, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, but like that, that math equation. Yeah. Um, and he would be, he was a football coach and, um, for eighth graders, you know, but eighth grade boys, I mean, that's a serious job. And he was kind of known as being mean, like he would like lock them in a closet to punish, you know, he's a little scary to the boys, but, and, and so maybe he was doing a little like overprotection of women, but, or of girls, but he'd be like, no, wait a minute, let Hannah ask her question. And because they were afraid of him, I could ask all the questions I wanted. And I was like, this guy's awesome. Um, (laughs) And that would, and I think he knew, like, I, you know, I think he knew I am dyslexic. So I had more questions Mm -hmm. than other people. Um, and I went, it's interesting, I went back and sat in his classroom like a few years ago just to, so I was like, what was that? And he's still doing it, you know? It's like really interesting, just, it was like a magic that no one else noticed. And I was just like, it was a really big deal that you're like protecting this space and the curiosity of people that need extra help and like making sure no one bullies them. Um, mm, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And then how did you kind of, so veterinarian and then eventually you kind of went into the field of medicine what kind of drew you into you know that field yeah there's a lot of different versions of that story because it's like there's a lot of 
uh, events that happened. I think, you know, I think it started when I backpacked around Asia when I was 18. I went to China to learn Mandarin. Um, precocious, precocious child I was. I was like, I'm doing it. And my parents like, what? They've never left New England, you know? Uh, so I went to Brazil when I was in, when I was 15 for a year as an exchange student. No one had ever left my, like, I don't think anyone had ever left New Hampshire, but I was like, we have German exchange students, so I must be able to go somewhere. And they're like, no, I don't, we don't think so. I mean, you can't go anywhere. And I was like, no, 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 I definitely can. <laughs> so I like wrote, you know, I wrote to the programs and ended up in Brazil for a year. And then um, I think that impacted me a lot. You know, I was mm-hmm. getting in trouble as a high school student, uh, you know, I was like switching signs around at hotels with my, pro- you know, uh I don't I feel like it, it was like the did you see the movie Jackass like 10 years mm-hmm. ago or something I feel like those were my friends in high school they were just like <laughs> so I, I you know got arrested trying to steal an orange barrel from the highway just like stupid shit as a, you know teenager dyed my hair a different mm-hmm. color every day my parents had to pick me up from the police station a couple times for like st- trying to steal lip balm that kind of thing so I was like you know what I gotta go I just gotta I gotta go somewhere I was getting straight A's which is so bored that I just went to Brazil saw the yeah, I saw poverty. I think I, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a way that was real. It was there. I lived with a very poor family that, that, like, my friend invited me to stay with her family for the last three months. And they didn't even really have money for food. And they were still sharing it with me. And I was like, I just can't even understand this level of generosity. Um, uh, and then went and um, went to Asia to study Mandarin and ended up just like backpacking around you start you start traveling into southern China I was like on a break from my Mandarin studies and you just like I intercepted the backpacking circuit in like 1999 it's 1999 and it's like southern China people are like oh you know go meet some Germans or Israelis are like keep going go into Laos go into Thailand and you're in Singapore and then you're like in India so they're just like (laughs) um and in, in Nepal, people kept handing me their, like, kids and being like, can you help my kid? They need an antibiotic. And I was like, I don't, I mean, I was like an 18-year-old. I was like, I don't know. No. Like, I'm not a doctor, but I guess I could be a doctor, you know, I guess if that's what if that's what people need of me. So that was the, um, mm. I started thinking about that. And I actually, I met this lady, Sabrie Timberkin, who um, she started a blind school. She's German, started a blind school in Tibet, invented the Tibetan Braille script, and like gathered up all the Tibetan blind Tibetan kids and started this school. It was really cool. And I asked her, I was like, here's my list of 10 things that I could be in the future. What do you, which one do you think is most useful? And it was like university professor, writer, artist, bossa nova player, <laughs> like guitar player. I love it. Uh, doctor. And she said, I would, you know, I pay, I would pick doctor because none of the kids in this school were born blind, not one. They were all, it was all infection, exposure to the sun, dust, not, you know, they didn't have access to antibiotics. So, um, so then I was like, okay, I'll do it. Um, and that was the beginning of um, that plan. So I called my parents from this like internet cafe in Nepal. And I was like, I figured out what I want to do. And they're like, what? We can't hear you. And I'm like, I want to be a doctor. And they're like, what? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> what did you just say? Uh, so um, took me a lot of years, but um and, and, and went seems- sort of off the off the trail and back on and off the path um but I eventually ended up back there yeah and then you went into speech pathology before you went into kind of the psychedelic science is that yeah um how did that path from kind of more traditional to i guess alternative at least in some sense someone would would see it that way 
Yeah. So I'll tell you what really happened is I wanted to be a doctor and then I went to McGill and McGill only let the Quebecois people do pre-med. Don't know why, but you couldn't do it from international. So I couldn't do pre-med. So I was like, okay, I didn't do pre-med. And my parents, they just thought it was totally crazy. They're like, you don't, you don't want to go med school. It's like a million years. Like do something practical. You love language, do that. And I was like, okay. So I shadow a speech pathologist. It's a cool profession. I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this makes sense. Got a full scholarship to Temple. Um, Cause I couldn't figure out like financially how it would be feasible for me to go to med school. Um, and then just kept, you know, just like, it's like this bug, you know, it's like this bug in your ear that's like, you gotta go. So I was like, oh man, you're into that. I ended up going to Cuba um, to a thing called the Cuba AIDS Project. And it was basically a bunch of doctors going there to learn about how they dealt with the AIDS epidemic, um, which was, I mean, there's a lot of like human rights violations with their management, but it's still like very interesting to hear from people about how they, um, they basically like tracked every single case and and got rid of it. And, but they would like force people into sanatoriums once they were diagnosed. It was like really sad. But so I was basically sent, I was able to go to Cuba under Castro um, because I was translating Spanish for the doctors. And that really, I think that was the final thing that just sold me um, that I was like, this is the position I want to be in. I could see like people being with a bunch of doctors, how much people just automatically trusted you. <laughs> And I was like, this, like, you can just jump into what's actually going on with someone. Um, and that was like, I was like, I have to do this. And the speech pathology people were like, ah, you got a scholarship. Now you're going off to med school. I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> you have to do it. Um, but the speech pathology education, it has been very helpful with everything that I'm doing, actually. Um, it like helps and then with how- communication and strokes <laughs> and yeah. How do we get from medicine to psychedelic science? Where's the... Yeah, so that's the part I think that 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 the that personal stuff kind of comes in a little bit. Um, I would, I mean, my story up until like maybe six months ago is that I, you know, I love neurology, I loved like brain and working with stroke patients, and I went to med school, and then med school <clears throat> brought me into like I kept wanting to go towards the brain and neurology. I ended up in neurology, and all I did was see was just like fo- hone in on the on the PTSD that was everywhere. So. Mm-hmm in a in a uh, hospital like the University of Pennsylvania uh, maybe about a third of the patients coming in with complaints that look like neurological are actually psychosomatic um so mm-hmm. the only way to f- help the person is actually talk about their trauma so they'll come in with like a numb leg or you know mm-hmm. um pseudo seizures or what we call non-epileptic seizures now but it, there's nothing going on in the brain that's causing the seizure in a like electrical way uh, but they're still having them and it's based like most more than half of those people I think have childhood sexual trauma um so I just like was really good at working with those patients and when I did my psychiatry rotation the the running joke was like someone came in with conversion disorder and they're just like give Hannah three hours and she'll get them discharged (laughs) even though they've been here for like a week you know (laughs) um and I go in and I just say like what's actually going on and like what how do you feel and how's your life and they like is it possible you like, is your life really stressed and your body's telling you, you need to like take care of yourself. If you, if you ask the right questions, you can people, even if it's unconscious, because mostly it's not, it's usually not conscious. Even if it's unconscious, people can get at what's actually going on. If you give them the like container to express themselves. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and I, and I think, um, and then I went to this uh, this SOAP conference, um, which was a psychedelic conference in Pittsburgh in 2018, I think it was. 
2019. Um, and they were showing videos of MDMA treatments. And I was like, this is it. This is how we're going to fix that problem. Mm. So I beelined it to Rick Doblin and I was like, I'm Hannah McLean and I am dropping everything. I'm doing whatever you need. And he was like, geez, okay, nice to meet you. Um, so I did. So, I, um, but I, I think that the personal story is that my dad had childhood sexual trauma which I didn't actually know, I guess, until I was in med school, but I didn't know the extent of it until, and he's given me permission to share, but um, he started to do plant medicine in the last six months and he's recovered the memory of the trauma. Mm -hmm. He's forgiven the, the perpetrator within the, like within the medicine journey, he was able to like realize that's the way he can like actually live a full life. And then he's, he's like actually getting back the first 10 years of his childhood memories. Cause it's, he, he had the sexual trauma at age 10. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't know he had blocked out age zero to 10 that can happen. It's like, you kind of take the thing, Mm -hmm. hide it. And then like all the stuff around it gets hidden. And so until like a month ago, I didn't know that my dad didn't have memories from the first 10 years of his life. So I was like, oh, this is why I was doing this all along. You know, it's like we're always trying to, you know, help those closest to us. And I didn't even know that was a motivator. So I was like, oh, I can retire now. And my, you know, I have 85 people I'm training in the psychedelic training program. And they're like, oh, no, don't don't retire. But really, it's like, I feel like in some ways my job is done. Um, What? So, you know, I was curious when I was reading about, you know, the fact that you're using psychedelics that I think there's still a big stigma with them. And so what, what do you find the biggest challenge in kind of convincing people that there are really good benefits to using psychedelic therapy to treat these mental illnesses? You know, I, I feel like the stigma is quickly disappearing. <laughs> like we have, we have almost 2000 people on our wait list at, at our psychedelic clinic in Philly. Um, I think there is some extra work you have to do with BIPOC communities, even though a third of our waitlist is BIPOC people, there's still like additional barriers because of the war I'm, on drugs to address. I'm sorry, what, um, what's BIPOC? Oh, like yeah. black, indigenous and people of color. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think when I started getting into it, I guess like in 2018, 2019, when I was really like, this is what I'm doing with my career, there was definitely some judgment from other doctors especially like people at the VA and at UPenn they're like what are you doing with your career like you could have been a real person and you're just throwing it out the window and I was like you talk to me in five years you know now they're all like texting me can I get treatment can my patient get treatment like how do you learn more about this thing um the psychoanalysts I think have a very purist view of like you don't need psychedelics you only need this one modality but there were just like last month there were five articles in the psychoanalytic literature about psychedelics which is a big deal. I feel like that of all the people in the world, I think they're the hardest com- to convince because um, they really believe this is this is complete the um, the approach. And um, I think psychoanalysts have the the best uh, like the um, most like ready to go skill set to be a psychedelic therapist of anyone because they know how to interpret dreams. They know how to like take the like fantasies and visions seriously they really do and so if you just say like treat this like a dream done they know how to do all the Mm. integration um it's only if someone's writing it off as as not a real experience or not meaningful and what about so i think you know as a, a person who's not familiar with it uh and others will think well you know when you think about psychedelic drugs you you know if you're not in a environment that's controlled that there's a risk of of serious problems and 
abuse. Do you have any of those kinds of concerns and you find that uh, you need to have a certain process and system in place to make it effective? Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. I mean, that's why the, you know, there's a lot of ketamine clinics that just use ketamine as a, like a medication. It's essentially like used as a long acting antidepressant. Um, what, how we're using it is we're opening, you know, opening this window of opportunity to look into thoughts and dreams and unconscious memories and like really helping people dig into what's going on rather than just have a, um, antidepressant effect. Um, you also get the antidepressant effect, but um, it seems that the approach with um, facilitated sessions creates longer lasting effects. Um, ketamine can be abused. That's why we're very, um, very, very careful if we ever send it home with someone and we track it very closely, like every single lozenge. Um, there's a lot of uh, at home use of ketamine right now that frankly makes me very nervous because um, people can start using it in different ways. They might not even realize that, you know, so if you use it, if you do like once a week or once every 10 days, do a journey, that's fine. You can do that till the end of time. You're, you know, that's not addiction, but you know, when people start doing like, Oh, smaller doses, I can do daily. And then, Oh, they need a little bit more. And then suddenly someone's addicted and they have a whole pile of ketamine from a, you know, at home ketamine a company that, that is, a problem and could be, you know, on the, on par with the opioid epidemic. If, mm. if it continues that way, we have never had any addiction issues with ketamine. Cause we're just, we track it really closely. If, if you create this container and you're sitting with someone and no one, we have never had someone like go look for it. It feels like a very weird thing to do. It, it seems totally crazy that you would look for this thing. Cause it feels like such a specific experience you're having in the clinic. Um, yeah, I've heard things of, like um, things like psilocybin. It's like you can't mm -hmm. really get addicted to that because it would be a lot of work to get addicted. You know, like even people microdosing, it's like it's a lot of work. You know, what it does is make things like more apparent that are happening in your life, and it's kind of like, you know, you get truth. Uh, and it's like sometimes that's hard. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, larger doses, it's like you really have to be ready for them. You have to treat it with care. Um, so I don't, I don't worry about the other psychedelics, LSD, same thing. Ayahuasca, like, oh my God, imagine an addiction to ayahuasca. That would be the, would be like the most masochistic thing you could do. <laughs> um, an MDMA, you know, I think in the underground, sometimes people do way too many journeys, even though they're facilitated and that can do very strange things to your serotonin levels in your brain. Um, not too, it's like, it's, it's. I don't know if I'd call that addiction. I think it can be like addiction to the cycle. It's like physiologic versus psychological addiction are mm -hmm. kind of different, but um, I, you know, it's just, it is really important. Uh, I think there is, there has been in history, a an importance to like solo, solo experiences and vision quests. And, you know, I don't, I don't think solo experiences are always bad, but I think where we are right now in as society um people don't really know how to set up the right circumstances for a solo experience. Um, so what, what's happening is things are rolling out as facilitated. Um, and is, and what about legality? I'm just, you know, I'm the son of a judge and things like that. So yeah. aren't a lot of these drugs, you know, illegal or control, you know, controlled substances. How yeah, totally. Um, Oregon's rolling out the first legal uh, psilocybin assisted psychotherapy or psilocybin um, uh, facilitated framework. Um, so basically you can get treatment with psilocybin in a, in a licensed 
facility mm-hmm. um, that's totally legal in the state of Oregon uh, now. And we're training the first, we're one of six organizations in the country training people to do that. Um, there's a lot of states that have decriminalized uh, psychedelics. That doesn't mean they're legal. It just means that mm-hmm. it's like lowest priority priority by the um, law enforcement. So we can't, like as medical people, we can't do anything with decrim. Um but better not to go to jail if you get caught. Um, and then there's a lot of federal stuff going on. So mm-hmm. um, MAPS just reached its the end of its, or the, it saw its final phase three patient, which th- three phases is how many you need to do to get approved for um, on a federal level for MDMA. So that's exciting. That will probably be available to prescribe within the next two years. Um. And, you know, a lot of people do underground or illegal use. And I think like right now, there's not too many places that are really cracking down on it. It's But it's not what we can't really inter- interface with that as a medical clinic. Right. Yeah. Uh, See, so you, you've traveled a lot of different places since teenager. And, and, and I'm curious, uh, what's the kind of most surprising place you found yourself, whether it's a location or engaging with a person that your younger self I'm like I can't believe that I was here or I can't believe I was talking with this person. Hmm. Let's see. I mean, I think the place that I am, the two places I think that I think about a lot are uh, my trip to India and Nepal and Tibet when I was 18, just like that I got the chance to go to Tibet when there wasn't a, there wasn't a train, there wasn't a highway. You had to go over land. It was bumpy. There was, you know, um, pre now, now you go and there's just like Chinese signs everywhere, but it was really before the, the, um, mass push to get more Han Chinese to Tibet had happened. I'm just really grateful. I saw that and talked to, you know, I talked to Tibetans and got, it's weird to use the, like the colonizer language to talk to them, but I feel like for many people along my route from Nepal to Lhasa, um, I was able to talk to them and they had they probably never get a chance to talk to a Westerner again because most people don't speak Tibetan. And um, now there's just so much oversight of like any conversations that happen. So just like really learning what that occupation was like and um, what it was like for their lives. Um, one, one person said to me, he was like, I know we look like we're happy and we're happy because we have our belief system, but we're not free. And I need you to tell people like, we are not free here. And I was like, as an 18-year-old, I was like, oh my God. I, okay. Um, so that I think that does stay in my mind as something I'd like to continue to, we're working on some ways of using psychedelics to help um, treat trauma in, in Tibetan refugee populations. So I'm very excited about that because it's sort of been on my life plan since I was 18, um, to really give back and, um, go in Cuba, I think under Castro, I think that's an opportunity you'll, you know, it was just once in a lifetime. Um, same thing, just talking to people, seeing what that was like, seeing what it was like to have him on the TV and have just understand how that worked. So as I read your, your bio and and mentioned all these incredible universities you studied at and and the kind of path that you've taken in terms of being able to pursue medicine in a way and and help lots of people. Uh, Most people would say, you you know, you're successful. Uh, How would you define success for you? Mm, That's a great question. Um, Yeah, it's interesting because I have this, 
I have this piece about getting diagnosed with dyslexia. Um, that's it's seven pages long. And I've been talking to Tom Schroeder who wrote acid test. He's helping me edit it to then submit it. And he's like, we could submit it to New Yorker Atlantic, you know, this would get published, but he's like, I need you to be like more honest about how shit went down, you know? I was like, uh, um, you know, that just like the actual real life experience of asking for like very minor accommodations and how it gets received and, um, and how, how, like how much shame is wrapped up in having dyslexia and ADHD. It's like, it's, it's in, it's so much that even it, it's like, I was like, I don't know if I can even do that. I might need help because I feel like I get a mental block when I'm, <laughs> it's a really great piece, but there's like parts that just aren't filled in, you know, the details. Um, and he's like, I mean, the great part is you wrote this eight years ago and you're a success story. You can say like, like fuck the system I succeeded you know and I was like did I and I was like I mean did I like I it still doesn't get rid of that shame of people might know how my mind works and how much help I need for like really simple tasks sometimes and then I, I can do these really big things you know I can think of these big like system changes but then someone tells me to like read this and it takes me twice as long you know and they're like why are you not scrolling are you not done yet and it's like I don't know like why are you pushing me to read too fast I read like half the speed of an eighth grader. <laughs> um, I think success, you know, I've had a lot of thinking over the last couple months about, um, I think the the work I'm doing now really feels like my calling. It's like all of my patients are now getting me Christmas presents. Like you know, yesterday I got a Christmas present from one of my patient's sister who was like, my brother hasn't, you know, I haven't seen my brother, my brother's, you know, been gone since his trauma. And now he's back to like the innocent, like happy kid he was when he was nine. And I was like, oh my God, gave me this huge box of chocolates. It's like hundred chocolates. <laughs> I was like, okay. I was like, I've never gotten Christmas presents like this before. Was I ever helping anyone before? Maybe not. Um, but Is I that think, the key, the impact, the helping people? That's, that's what I'm hearing. I think so. I think so. But I also think it's, um, it's like being in right relationship to that healing. And I think I've just recently come, come into this like understanding that you can be a really good healer and you can, you can do really good work, but not necessarily be in right relationship with that healing. Like you can work too much or like over attached to that idea. And I think that like once my dad's trauma started getting released, I could see how much I've, I've been a product of intergenerational trauma in a way that it's like, there's a sense of like, there isn't safety in the world, you know? And like, you have to just keep building and building because no one's going to catch you if you fall. Um, and that's not really true because my parents would catch me, but that's the, that's the world they lived in, you know, that it's like, you got to keep doing it. Um, and so there, I'm just noticing how much there has been like a part of my drive has been trauma informed almost in a way that's like, you know, it worked. I was, I am successful, but that I, th I think the success is when you can balance that with like doing art and like, you know, writing and being creative and spending more time with your family. So like having a successful career in which you really feel like you're making an impact, but also having that time. Um, and I, and I've just realized now how important it is to embody that, um, because I'm training so many people and if I'm not embodying that, they're not, I'm not going to be like radiating the right energy of what it should look like. Um, so it feels urgent to just be like, I need to show what balance looks like. Cause I'm pulling all these people out of the healthcare system that they're burned out and they're like frontline COVID people. And they're like, ah, and like, you have to help them find their healthy place so that they can then hold the space, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's 
I, I think we a lot of us struggle who are driven to to succeed. Success is not just about the professional, but it's about balancing the personal and having them kind of, as you said, I like the idea of you know balance. Um, this I always find this interesting. You're doing a lot of things to try and help people. You know what inspires you to do that. No, um, I think it's just like innate. Uh, maybe traveling at a young age and seeing that there are people that are born, like seeing the privilege of being born in this country. You know, I think I, you know, in New Hampshire, growing up, I saw my how, my parents how hard they worked, and I was like, wow, you know, they really they've they've come into success because they worked so hard and they didn't start with anything but then you see people in other countries like brazil that are working just as hard and there's nothing there there are no resources you know um and so i just realized oh my god i really am privileged like i am a white person in the richest country in the world with like the most opportunities i speak english you know um i have loving parents and yeah, there's stuff that's also hard, you know, being dyslexic is hard, having ADHD is hard, uh, having a dad with sexual trauma is hard, but, but like, I, I realized I could use the tools, you know, and a lot of people don't have that opportunity, even though they might want it just as bad. So I think I just, that launched a drive to just actually utilize the tools of privilege that I have at my disposal. Yeah. And what do you think is the next kind of trend, if there is such a thing in psychedelic science and therapy? Where do you think it's, you said, you know, the stigma's kind of going. So where do you think things are headed? Um, I think there's gonna be a lot of healing, a lot of healing. Uh, I just, I can't believe I can go into work and day after day, see people that have treatment resistant depression or suicidality that they've had since they were a kid and then not have it anymore permanently. It's like, how do I just be in this position? I get to witness it. And yes, I'm doing good work, but it's like, now I have tools that actually work. And I didn't have that before. Um, so I think uh, on a micro level, there's going to be a lot of healing. Um, on a macro level, I think we have to work really hard not to let the, um, what John Dennis calls the psychedelic industrial complex, which I love. <laughs> not let the psychedelic industrial complex take over so it's just seeing how capitalism comes in and starts making people cut corners i was really lucky that i had people that were willing to like give me a loan for the building and that you know without too many strings attached and i've been able to stay very independent i don't have we don't have any investors so we have no one saying like oh you you're doing four hour ketamine sessions why don't you do three or even two some people are doing two now and you know where that comes from it comes from Someone's behind it being like putting the into the calculator, like how many patients times how many rooms times how many hours in the day times, you know, equals $3 million. Like you could be making three rather than $2 million. What is happening? So I think we have like a very, we have two therapists almost, almost at every session, because I think it creates even better container for people. We do four hour sessions, not two or three. Um, we just, you know, it's, it's not like the best way to make money, but it's the best way to heal someone. So I think that um, I think we have to work together to make sure that it it stays uh, in integrity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're gonna uh, jump to rapidish fire questions. Um, first one: if if a movie was made about your life, can you think of someone you might want to play you? 
I really have no idea the answer to this question. Oh my God. Even if I Meryl did, Street, I like, she could do I like couldn't, I couldn't even think of the person's name. I have people in mind, but like, I'm dyslexic. It's like, I have leaky phonemes in my brain. So it's like, I don't know those people's names. Um, well, uh, the casting directors. I'll have to think about that one. I feel like sure. I feel like I'd want it to be like Johnny Depp or something. I know that he's been doing like really messed up stuff recently, but I, I feel like he's super he, talented. I feel like he could embody something. I don't even know, you know, I don't even know if the person would look like me or but just like could embody the maybe the um the the aspect of Dr. Hannah. <laughs> sure. When I when I was in um, when I this is a very brief tangent, but when I was in med school, Brown Medical School would after the second year they give everyone awards some of them are jokes and some of them are like more serious like most likely to help the most people or most likely to you know become a i don't know um yeah funny things but so mine they left mine to last and they were like we didn't even know what to do with this one so we just brought everyone in had a group um contemplation of all the medical school teachers and we decided we can all we can do is just call the award what it is and so we're gonna award the hannah mclean award to hannah mclean and everyone just started <laughs> laughing and i like i'm like face turned red i put my hood up i was just like what does that even mean and they're like hannah you're like you don't go to class you're like you're um mentoring other people in how to skip class in med school you know because i was like you can like re- you can listen to everything at twice the speed two times for the same amount of time and it's like i was just doing weird stuff with my studying i was going to jamaica and studying for my like exams on the beach with my rastafarian friends it's like we just don't even know what is going on you know <laughs> so i, I love that uh should stories always have happy endings no i don't think so no um do you have do you have a favorite emoji you know what's funny? I have a I have a person on my team who does uh, like admin, and he always does so funny on Slack. He'll he'll do the eyes going sideways, and he, like he was trying to say like I saw it. Check. I, I I looked at the your message, and I kept for months. I thought he was being like not it. <laughs> you know, like I'm not. <laughs> and I was like Justin, like. I know you don't want, he's like, oh, no, 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 that's not at all what I meant. But I just like, it was like, uh, I don't know. What Danger you're of emoji communication. <laughs> so there's, I do think like dyslexic people, you know, I don't know, but I feel like I often misunderstand emojis. And so I'm like reading it totally different than what the person's trying to say. <laughs> I do a lot of like the the one with the with the eyes, uh, tears coming out of the eyes is, is nice. like funny. Uh, uh, can you name a favorite song? Uh, I, I, I'm gonna name my favorite genre, which is sure. um, like old school Brazilian music, like Tom Zay, nice. um, uh, Clara Nunes. Um, like really, I've just been listening to all the old, the old, like Brazilian jazz. I used to go digging in like Bahia with my friend for old records, like Brazilian jazz records that they don't, they're not, they're not even digitalized. It's like, Oh my God, it's so amazing. Yeah. Love it. I'll have to try and find some on YouTube, maybe. Um, Can you name a book that left a lasting impression on you? Siddhartha by Herman Hess, one of my favorite books. Can you, you can read it. You these? can read it in a day. I can even read it in a day, maybe two days. So everyone should read that. It's a really good book. Um, can you name one of your favorite movies? 
Um, I would say that my two two movies come to mind are The Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind and Labyrinth, which I've watched a thousand times <laughs> since I was in third grade because David Bowie is so hot. <laughs> What's one thing you can't live without? Um, what's one thing I these are these are real questions, huh? <laughs> oh no, rapid fire is not the way to characterize them. One thing I can't live without, I'd probably say like a bathtub. I love baths. I like that. Um, and if you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be? Oh, there I have a lot of things. Um. I like to take I like to take the credit for the the following terms: psychedelic urgency. Made that one up. Love it. Um, psychedelic famous comes from Courtney on my team. She's like, "Oh, everyone wants to be psychedelic famous these days." Psychedelic ecosystem and facilitator being used in now. I, like I think I was the first one to start using those terms. Um. Uh. Yeah, I think you know there. I, there's a lot of things over the years that I've um helped come up with oh it's interesting that question usually is about things that people haven't invented you're actually giving us things that you have yeah yeah, yeah totally totally <laughs> i love that well listen uh thank you so much is there anything, if people want to know more about what you're doing in the work um is there anything you want to share what's the best place for people to kind of find you and learn more yeah so you can go to soundmind.center or just like or you can google soundmind institute for our training program um if you if you email um, info at, sign, at soundmind.institute, you can get me. Um, and uh, yeah, you can check out all of our all of our programming online. Um, I give a lot of talks. There's a lot of free webinars that I've done online. I like to make sure there are free things for everyone if they can't afford our year long course. There's lots of um, free stuff you can get. And um, yeah, I'm sure I'll be doing lots more interviews in the coming months and years too. Thanks. Well, I'm very uh, thankful that you did this interview. I really appreciate your time hearing your story. Uh, it's been really interesting and fascinating. Uh, and most of all, I want to thank you for helping us connect the dots. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Love it. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could also do me a favor and please leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. Remember, story matters and is the best way to connect the dots.